0: Clint, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPs Middle East Books Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars with new books in the field. We're joined today by Eilee Tripp. She's the Wangari Mathai Professor of Political Science and Gender and Women's Studies at Uni- University of Wisconsin-Madison, author of the brand new book, Seeking Legitimacy, Why Arab Autocracies Adopt Women's Rights. It was just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Ailee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So tell us a little bit about the book. What inspired you to write it? And what do you think the major contribution of this book is going to be?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I've worked for over 30 years on women's movements in Africa and uh, women in politics in mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, And I wanted to look uh, at some North African cases. I primarily worked in East Africa and West Africa but I wanted to know more about North Africa. My training actually was originally in Middle East studies, So in a way it was, Hmm. (laughs) I had taken a 30 year detour and (laughs) really in sub-Saharan Africa, but now I wanted to put my language skills to use and also want the background that I had um, in the region. And so theoretically I was motivated by the, the notion that women's rights are generally associated with democracy. Yet we're seeing in Africa and in the Middle East and North Africa, the MENA region, we're seeing women's rights being adopted in an illiberal context. And so I'm interested in why that's the case. Um, What are some of the different paths to adopting women's rights? And what are the consequences of what we see as as kind of state-generated feminism? Um, Furthermore, I was interested in the fact that you have this growing um, divergence within the MENA region itself in terms of the adoption of women's rights Yet people still keep talking about the region as one monolith when it came to women's rights and And you have people making claims that it's all about religion and about authoritarianism and the whole region is irrevocably doomed mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when It comes to women and and then you have another discourse about Islam that um, Muslim women belong to a Muslim world Um, And yet there are enormous differences within the region. Um, I I saw this in Africa between Muslim countries or Muslim majority countries, let's say, Um, and you see the same, these same differences in uh, the MENA region as well. Uh, And a lot of these differences have to do not just with religion, but really the, the policies that are adopted by the rulers by the policies of political parties that are in power, including Islamist parties, um, in the case of, of the Maghreb, the North African p- cases. And so uh, the, the big overarching question that I'm trying to answer is, you know, why are autocrats adopting women's rights legislation and making constitutional provisions and promoting women as leaders? Uh, and in a nutshell, um, my argument has to do with some of the strategic interaction that that goes on between uh, the ruling parties, um, which in the case of Tunisia and and Morocco for the time period I'm looking at are Islamist parties. Um, So between the regime and these Islamist parties and the various Islamist movements in these countries and the interaction with women's movements, um, this interaction between these various actors uh, has resulted in an unprecedented advancement in women's rights. Uh, So for the Islamist parties in power in Tunisia and Morocco, it had to do, and and also with the party, with the ruling party in Algeria, it had to do with um, expediency domestically in terms of staying in power um, to keep religious extremists at bay. Uh, It had to do with creating an international image of modernity and progress. And uh, it had to do with responding to popular pressures from women's movements, which themselves were collaborating across, across these three countries.
0: So there's a, there's a lot going on there. Why don't we start? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's so interesting. But why don't we start with like one of the interesting puzzles that uh, you frame in the book, which is that you see very similar types of uh, legislation favorable to women's rights being uh, being adopted in these three uh, North African countries at roughly the same time. Um, and so explain tell us a little bit about that. What, what changed and sure. what do you think drove that change?
1: Sure. So... I mean, first just to backtrack a little bit to give some background, uh, you have a, uh, uh, initially at the time of independence, I think you have to go back to that, that point, um, these three countries in the Maghreb, um, Morocco, Tunisia and Algeria, um, shared the French colonial legacy. Um, Algeria and Morocco had significant Amazir population, that is the, the Berbers, but they call it Amazir in, in, uh, in the region. And also, all three countries adopted a unified legal system, which did, which was not um, split between civil courts and uh, religious or Sharia courts. Um, so they had these things in common, but otherwise they were very, very different. So uh, Tunisia, for example, was a, really a standout in terms in the whole region, the whole MENA region, in terms of um, being a secular regime that used women's rights as a real uh, cornerstone of its uh, image, it's modernizing image. It was, um, uh, I mean, right from the start, um, Habib Bourguiba, uh, adopted, um, made, made changes in the constitution and made changes in the personal status code that advanced women's rights in a, in a very different way than you saw in other parts of the region at that time. So it, it stood out in the, re- in the Maghreb, but also in the broader region. Morocco, on the other hand, was an, a monarchy, and it's and one in which the king drew on its um, on religion, on drew on Amazir uh, cultural traditions to legitimate his rule, and uh, and there was some accommodation of, of political pluralism in Morocco, but not but 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 very constrained. Um, it opened up a little bit more after 1999 when. Um, the the current king took over. And then finally, Algeria had a a secular authoritarian regime uh, where the military was very much in control, very much uh, in charge. And it had made um, many concessions to Islamists. Um, Not not so different than Tunisia and Morocco in that sense. Um, But um, the big difference was that um, in in the 1990s, it ended up um, in a major uh, civil war fought between um, many forces, but the government and the Islamist forces in particular. And And
0: women were kind of central to those battles in Algeria at that time.
1: Who was central? Women. Women, yes, exactly. Um, And and women were headed, but even more (laughs) central to the movement um, earlier on before 62. Anyway, these three countries are very different in, the, in this regard. Um, perhaps, you know, there were, again, some similarities with the, the Amazir population, the religion, the language, and so on. But otherwise, I mean, really, they were, they, in terms of women's rights, they were quite different, and Tunisia was the standout. In 2000, you began to see these two, these three countries converging, um, and you saw uh, them adopting, um, a, a series of legislation, almost in sync. Um, if one country passed a law one year to the next year, another con- neighboring country would pass it. So the legislation was around quotas, around sexual harassment, quotas for, for women in parliament, rather, I should say. Um, sexual harassment, uh, prohibiting the marriage of um, the rapist to their victim,
0: mm-hmm.
1: around nationality issues where the woman could take the, the the children could take the nationality of the mother, for example, um, and various other legislation around violence against women. So you saw this convergence going on in these three countries and and so that's part of what I'm (laughs) trying to explain in in this book is why that happened. And part of the reason for the similarities um, have to do with the women's movement, um, which was in fact collaborating at this time, Uh, in in particular um, and this um, was a function in part of the. Uh, there was a conference in Beijing, held in Beijing in 1995, and in the lead up to that conference, throughout Africa, not just in not just in North Africa, but throughout Africa, actually even globally, uh, women's organizations began to coalesce um, to prepare a, a joint agenda first, um, nationally, and then regionally, and then throughout, for example, throughout Africa, and then. And throughout Asia and Latin America, um, there were conferences that were held, and then they went to Beijing in 1995. <clears throat> and uh, so, um, for this UN fourth conference on women. And in, so, in the lead up to that conference, um, activists from these three countries, um, through the collective Maghreb Egalite, um, formed in 1991 uh, this you know, group of, of organizations that plotted the strategy to bring about gender equality. And they drew on the common languages, the common history, um, to be able to outline it an agenda. And what's really striking about this agenda is that it's—I mean, if you look—if you look now back in retrospect, they really followed it almost to a T. It's it, it, um, the legislation that they, they targeted. All of these things have really come to come to bear um, to fruition. Um, so just. What maybe a, a, a sense of some of the, um, the ways in which people f- thought about this collaboration. Um, I spoke to a Tunisian lawyer and women's rights activist and she explained um, I currently participate in many meetings on law and when you attend these meetings, you realize that the rapprochement between the Maghreb countries and the legal difference between the Maghreb and the Middle East is, is there. First, the feminist movement appeared almost simultaneously in all three countries. For example, we conducted many meetings together on sexual harassment. And the three states at the same time changed laws to punish sexual harassment. When we established parity in our electoral law, these are the quota laws, um, when we established parity in our electoral law in 2011, in Algeria, they modified the constitution and modified the electoral law to introduce the quota. Morocco introduced parity in the constitution and laws. And so it is moving forward in a convergent way. So <clears throat> these, these are you know, some examples of how, how the, the women's movement was able to bring about this kind of coalescence um, or, or convergence in, in legislation.
0: Oh, it's interesting that you had such a robust uh, uh, civil society in, in the area of women's rights and, and gender rights, um, especially given uh, some of the difficulties that other forms of civil society faced in uh, in these autocratic regimes. Tell us a little bit about the calculations of the autocrats themselves as they're as they're watching this happen.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's, these are strong movements, but they're but they're definitely they're there and they're definitely players. And the fact that um, women's rights are such a central theme in North African politics. I mean, nothing happens without the issue of uh, women's rights coming to the fore somehow. Um, as we saw at the at the time of independence in Algeria, as we saw in the um, in the after the Arab Spring in Tunisia with the debates over the constitution in 2011, um, as we saw also in in, in Morocco after in 2011 that they had a small Banque um, movement uh, Arab Spring movement there as well, and the, they had constitutional changes. So whenever there is a kind of a major critical juncture, as you might. Say call it, you 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 see women's women's rights coming um, coming to the fore and becoming quite central, and so for um, and so for the leaders and I'm, here yeah. I'm going to talk primarily well the, in, in Morocco one has to separate out the king plays a major role there the king has been a major uh, factor in shaping. Um, the legislative changes and all the parties are beholden to the king at some level um, to one degree or another and they have to compromise at some to some degree. Um, In, in, let's just take the Moroccan case perhaps because Mm -hmm. it's a very, it's very clear cut. Um, There, the, 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 um, the king had been, after he, after the current King Mohammed um, VI came into power in 1999 after his father died, uh, he wanted to make reforms in, in, in the area of women's rights. And I think part of it was to signal to the international community that, uh, that uh, Morocco is this progressive, tolerant, uh, modernizing country. And to do that, he, had to, he confronted the Islamists in the same way that the leaders in the other countries did as well. Um, and he, he, it was a very kind of a delicate <laughs> negotiating uh, situation. But at one point in 2003, there had been a, a jihadist attack in Casablanca. And this then gave him, in a way, the political legitimacy to move ahead. And so he forged a commission to look into the personal status code. Uh, and this has been something that was really bitterly opposed by the uh, Islamists in the country, and uh, and and there were huge demonstrations. Again, this is another kind of a moment where you begin. You see how central women's rights were in uh, Moroccan politics. You had literally millions of people protesting, mostly on the Islamist end, protesting the reforms that were being proposed, um, which had to do with pulling back uh, on polygamy, giving women more rights around divorce. Um, uh, diminished the role of the guardian um, so women could pick their own who they married and so on. And so uh, at that time, uh, the PJD was emerging. That's the, the, the Islamist Party in Morocco, um, uh, mm-hmm. the um, Party for Justice and Development. Uh, and uh, it then came into, eventually came into power in 2011, heading up a coalition government. Um, but if you, you know, take, for example, the position of the PJD at that time, it was very much involved in these demonstrations against the, the family code and the reforms in the family code. And, um, and by 2004, it had done almost 180 degree turn because it, was, it wanted to come into power. And so it went from a position where it had been very much, you know, in the leadership of opposition to these major women's rights reforms to actually being a leader now in women's rights reforms, doing even more than some of the secular parties had done. So you, it, for, and just, to give it, just to give you some sense of this, they had um, been very much against the, uh, there's a UN treaty um, on the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination of Women. They had been very much opposed to that. Today, they support it. Uh, and it's not just them. It's also, you know, I talked, I did I lots of interviews with leaders of the um, uh, Muntada Zahra, which is the, uh, the Islamist women's organizations that are very active throughout the country. And, you know, they also support it, <laughs> which is, you know, I just was like, are you sure? And they're like, yes. <laughs> um, so it's, a, you know, th- th- there's been a change around CEDA. There's been a change. They don't they don't see these issues completely the same way that the secular feminists see them. Um, uh, but there's been a change in, in in their attitudes. So you know, for example, around violence against women, um, I think secular feminists would say that one of the options should be that women could leave a marriage and get divorced. Whereas for the Islamist the women Islamists. And the government, the priority is to keep the family intact and make sure that the, fam- the family is the, preserving the family is the, the core concern, but they're still taking up the issues of Violence against women and how to support women and so on. So they, they take up the same issues, but they have a, they have different perspectives on them. Anyway, so you had um, These changes that took place and then it wasn't just the around the CEDAW. It was also around the legislation around women. Um, if you look now, what has been the kind of legislation that um, PJD, which has you know, been, like I said, in power since 2011, they've, been, they've continued steadily to pass legislation um, on the abortion legislation, for example. They, they don't support abortion like, like they do in Tunisia, but they have um, reformed it in the sense that in the past, it was you could only have an abortion if the mother's health, health was affected. Um, Now you can have an abortion in cases of rape, um, incest, and fetal impairment. Um, Most recently, they passed uh, legislation around violence against women. uh, And that was a major major act that was was passed. Uh, They've they've implemented all kinds of European Union policies that involve um, uh, women's rights concerns and so on. So um, uh, I don't think that's. The, the way that they engage these issues, it's not to the same extent that the, that the secular feminists would like. I, I don't think they go far enough or fast enough, but um, but there's been a, you know, a, a very significant change in their attitude. So, um, and the same, we saw the same thing in, in uh, with the Inahda party in Tunisia after the Arab Spring, you saw the, the debates around the constitution and their, effort, their initial efforts were to water down women's rights provisions and include a clause that had to do with complementarity where women would have rights in their own domain, the house, the house, and men could have um, be equal but in, their, in the public domain. And so they'd be equal, men and women would be equal but in their own domain. Well, as you can imagine, the feminists pushed up pushed back against this very hard, and in fact, they collaborated with some of the women in the in the in the Party that were involved in the constitution making process, and were able to push back against and got these this complementarity clause eliminated, um, and they got lots of other provisions that, um, into the constitution, which makes it one of the most um, progressive constitutions. In um, in the world, actually, when it comes to women's rights, so you know these are just examples of how the the, the Islamist parties had to make a political calculus here um, in these two countries. Um, Algeria is a little bit different because you didn't have an Islamist party in power, but um, the fact that the Islamist parties in Algeria have retreated so significantly and are, are just not really players anymore um, in in the current um, context. That um, tells you that their, their impact that they had in 1991, where they um, were winning, you know, all the elections uh, around the country, locally, um, that that impact has dissipated almost entirely, and and um, so with it, then there, the, this, the targeting of women um, has also gone to to a great extent. But it's,
0: it's fascinating the. the... The juxtaposition, or I should say, the interaction effects between the Islamist movements and the women's movements in these three countries over the years, um, and especially when you you know you look at the the ways in which. Uh, in, in the narrative of your book, the Islamists emerge as kind of the, as, as the opponent or as the enemy that mobilizes women a lot of the time. But you describe all these changes taking place within the Islamist movements today. Um, it's a little bit beyond the scope of your book, but going past 2011, did these changes help, at the changes within the Islamist movements help at all in overcoming polarization between Islamists and secularists?
1: Think so because I think you've seen the continuity. It, um, uh, okay, so in Tunisia, um, the current administration is not uh, at least um, Kais Said um, when he came in as president in, in October 2019. Initially, <laughs> um, you know, said that he wouldn't just go as far as the previous president, Sebci, around inheritance rights. ASEPSI, if you if um, you recall had right before he died, um, he had he had said that he was going to, and he had in fact got the, the cabinet to approve um, e- equality and inheritance. And that would have been a first in the region. Um, so Saeed went back on that. He didn't, he didn't wanna go that far. And in fact, there was pushback in the country against that. That was seen as just one, one step too far, but it's definitely there in the discourse and then in the dis- public discussion, um, as it is in, in Morocco as well. Anyway, but you see, the very first thing, if you look at the first, um, uh, Saeed's first uh, public statement, it, he starts off talking about women's rights. I mean, that's the first thing he talks about. Hmm. Um, and so that tells you something. And, and his, his, his pledge was to support women to gain more rights, especially economic and social rights, uh, and to promote uh, gender equality. So that's the, that and then the issue of corruption. Those are the two issues he addressed. Then if you look at the new um, Prime Minister, Mechichi, um, uh, he's um, also has um, increased the number of women in the cabinet. I mean, the previous government, there were only 18%. Now there's 28%. Uh, there's been a little bit of a movement back in terms of the numbers of women in parliament. But um, but anyway, the, I think the commitment is still there. And you, you see that. Uh, the same thing in, in Morocco. Um, the uh, there's, um, the current president has continued with, with the policies of of, of um, Bank Iran and in fact, gone even further than Bank Iran did. Bank Iran actually became quite famous for many of his, some of his state statements that were um, uh, glorifying women's status within the home, and there was a, had been a lot of criticism of him, and in fact, it may have been even one of the reasons why he I wouldn't say it was the reason, but it was it was one of the reasons why I think he even he got pushed aside. Um, Afmane has been even more aggressive in terms of promoting some of the EU policy, EU-funded programs um, around women's rights. So I, yeah, the, the continuity is definitely there. In Algeria, it's it's so much in flux. I think it's hard to really say what's happening um, there right now in terms of the state feminism because they have you know other preoccupations. Um, but I, I, again, I don't see any effort to go back on women's rights
0: there either. It's really interesting. Um, So the the subtitle of the book, Why Arab Autocracies Adopt Women's Rights, um, you you lay out the the strategic interaction and the the efforts of these women and the activists and everything like that. Um, I wonder if, um, how would you respond to the criticism that's often made that this was used as a way to avoid democratization. In other words, by mobilizing opposition to uh, Islamists while showing kind of a modernizing face by being pro-women's rights, these regimes were basically insulating themselves from internal and external challenges. Um, How how does your argument fit within that uh, critical perspective on what those autocrats were doing?
1: I think that that certainly is there, and in fact in in a, my last chapter of the book, I talk about some of the pitfalls mm-hmm. of, of authoritarians adopting women's rights because i mean they they have their own agenda <laughs> and and uh, definitely it's one of them is to deflect from other ac- accusations around human rights of abuses of other kinds uh so it's a it's an it's perhaps an easy way of getting uh International attention and acclaim. I mean, I think, for example, you're seeing this in, right now in the United Arab Emirates. They have adopted a quota uh, and uh, have now 50% women in the parliament. Um, so it's something they can point to and say, oh, look, you know, <laughs> we're doing this. Um, while, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for the way that, that women are treated in United Arab, Arab Emirates and other uh, areas. Um, so it's a, it is a way of deflecting attention, um, uh, and yeah, I, I, I agree that that is part of the agenda, but I think it's also important to remember that there are multiple agendas in these countries, and mm-hmm. have also women's rights actors who have their own goals, and, and, um, uh, and, but for them, it's a little bit fraught sometimes, and especially the women, for example, who uh, supported Ben Ali's um, efforts to improve women's status um in the prior to 2011 uh in Tunisia um many of them and the same you can say even the same in Morocco that many of these many of the women's rights activists were seen as aligned too much with the state even though they also came under attack from the state I mean it it wasn't it wasn't just um it it was kind of a mis, perhaps a misperception um um but the only way that you get things done in an authoritarian state is somehow playing, playing ball with those in power. <laughs> and they had to do that. And so I, you know, the question is then how close do you get to, um, to the point that you get then tainted by the regime itself? And so in some, in some countries, people felt that these policies were being, um, being uh, promoted by the government. Um, and uh, were, they were associated with authoritarianism. Um, but I think it's a, it's more complicated than that um, because of these multiple agendas.
0: Well, it's it's really interesting, and um, the uh, to go back to where we uh, one last question go back to where we started. Um, given everything that you say about the the ways that north africa developed differently from the rest of the middle east which lessons from your book do you think travel beyond the maghreb into the rest of the middle east and which ones do you think are really exclusive to the context of these three countries oh
1: yeah well (laughs) there are many different lessons here um one is that i mean one the one thing that stands out and in the book i compare these three countries Mm -hmm. Egypt and with Jordan and with Lebanon and one thing that you see in that comparison is that um, these countries used women's rights as a way of sidelining and isolating the Slavists and uh, and uh, uh, drawing a <laughs> drawing a, a, a line between themselves and the extremists. You don't see that in Jordan or in uh, Lebanon. Uh, Egypt, CC has done a little bit of that, um, but it's not. I don't feel like it's really, he's really been very convincing because he's also gone after women's organizations and really targeted them and, and, and um, suppressed them. So it's hard to take his efforts seriously. Um, but so that's one, one pattern that you see. Um, another is the role of the women's movement and that where you have women's, women's movements that are active um, and where they, you, you do see changes. Um, and without women's movements, um, nothing much changes. Um, Another point that I make is that um, even though one of the big differences between the Maghreb and many Middle East countries is the fact that they have this unified legal system, uh, you also um, do find some of these legal systems in other countries, like um, these unified legal systems in countries like Iraq and Kuwait, Um, and you have... uh, Unified court system in Libya, Yemen, Oman, and Egypt, but not unified laws anyway the, the unified legal system is actually is, is something that has to be that has to be in place um, it 's a necessary condition but it 's not sufficient so you know alone it 's not sufficient to bring about change, but it is something that has to be there um, for later women 's rights reforms and I think that that comes through in, in these cases if you look at these um, the, the Maghreb cases. And I think it um, um, helps explain why some have argued that the unified system is all that's needed, but I show that it's not enough um, because you have other parts of of the Middle East where you have these unified legal systems and you don't have the same results.
0: Well, great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we've been speaking with Ailee Tripp of the University of Wisconsin at Madison about her new book, Seeking Legitimacy, Why Arab Autocracies Adopt Women's Rights, uh, just published by Cambridge University Press. Eile, uh, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me here.